Welcome to Harvard Divinity School, and happy birthday to Henry David Thoreau. As most of you know, this is not Thoreau's birthday. He was born 200 years, two months, and two days ago on July 12, 1817. Most of us here at HDS were off climbing our own private Katahdins during the summer, so we are honoring Thoreau now, wedged in between the gala of our own bicentennial last spring and our celebration of the 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation, uh, which we'll begin marking uh, at least a month early with the Dudleyan Lecture on September 27th. My name is Dan McCannon, and on behalf of the faculty and administration of Harvard Divinity School, I'm delighted to welcome you to this place and this celebration. At the Divinity School, we cannot claim Thoreau as directly as can our friends at Harvard College, but he knew many of our founders and especially many of the first students to graduate from this place. More than many of those friends, he anticipated the Divinity School's future as a place where the insights of all the world's religions flow together to change the world. So it's fitting that we celebrate him here today. This event was made possible by the generosity of the Unitarian Universalist congregations and individuals who endowed my own chair, and by the generous support of Dean David Hempton. Uh, that support allows us to host a number of events here uh, that maintain a vital connection between our school and the Unitarian Universalist movement. There will be another such event on November 17th, when UU scholars from around the country meet at Arlington Street Church on the eve of the American Academy of Religion, Society of Biblical Literature meeting. And a third comes on November 30th, when I will be giving the annual James Luther Adams Forum Lecture uh, on the theme of James Luther Adams and Unitarian Universalist history right here in this room. Tonight's celebration is co-sponsored by the Unitarian Universalist History and Heritage Society. Along with its predecessor organizations, the UUHHS has been remembering the history of liberal religion in the United States since 1834, and we continue to publish an annual journal and host a convocation every three years. If you want to support events like this in the future, please pick up a flyer, they look like this, uh, when you go to the reception, and join up. Uh, the UUHHS would also like to invite you uh, to an event marking the restoration of the monument and gravesite of William Ellery Channing at Mount Auburn Cemetery. That event uh, happens uh, on October 1st at 1.30 at the cemetery and I believe at 2, Rosemary tells me, uh, at 2 on October 1st. And you've got some flyers for that, right? And uh, if you come away eager to learn more uh, from tonight's speakers, please know that the new books of both Laura Dasso Walls and Richard Higgins are available for purchase at both the Harvard Coop and the Harvard Bookstore in the square. It's now my pleasure to introduce tonight's panel. This evening, we have the great privilege of hearing from four scholars who have spent decades thinking about Henry David Thoreau both in his own complex historical context and as a compelling spiritual teacher for our own time. Laura Dasso Walls and Richard Higgins will share some of the central insights of their recently published books on Thoreau. 
then Barry Andrews and Terry Tempest Williams will respond out of the depths of their own Thoreauvian experience. <coughs> Our first speaker, Laura Dasso Walls, is author of Henry David Thoreau, A Life. This volume, published just in time for the bicentennial, is the first comprehensive Thoreau biography in a generation. Walls herself is the William P. and Hazel White Professor of English at Notre Dame and one of the foremost scholars in the environmental humanities. Her reputation as a leading Thoreauvian was established by her 1995 book, Seeing New Worlds, Henry David Thoreau and 19th Century Natural Science. She then branched out with works on Ralph Waldo Emerson and on the naturalist Alexander von Humboldt, always stressing the interplay between scientific study and literary creation. She's currently working on Earthrise, a study that traces the ongoing impact of the 19th century concept of the Earth as a living being. I first met Professor Walls at the Thoreau Society meeting in Concord this past summer, and it was exciting to be surrounded by Concordians as she reflected on how deeply Thoreau was embedded in both the landscape and the human community of Concord. Thoreau spent much less time at Harvard than he did at Concord, of course, but I'm excited to hear her thoughts on Thoreau in our context, and especially in relation to the religious work of the Divinity School. Our next speaker, Richard Higgins, is well known to many here, as he received his MTS degree from the Divinity School in 1997. Like Thoreau, Higgins has spent time in Cambridge, but is most deeply devoted to Concord, where he's a longtime resident. <clears throat> This devotion is evident in his new book, Thoreau and the Language of Trees. Robert Richardson has said that there is real magic in this book because Higgins sees trees the same way Thoreau did, one at a time, with real attention to their individuality. Rich has written widely for the New York Times, Boston Globe, Christian Century, Smithsonian, and the UU World, most recently as the author of the UU World's own Thoreau Bicentennial piece entitled The Original Nun. Uh, Rich is also the author of the co-author of Portfolio Life and co-editor of Taking Faith Seriously. Our first respondent, Barry Andrews, has championed the transcendentalist heritage within Unitarian Universalism for decades. His volumes, Thoreau as Spiritual Guide, Emerson as Spiritual Guide, The Spirit Leads, A Dream Too Wild, and True Harvest, make the works of Emerson, Thoreau, and Margaret Fuller fully available to spiritual seekers. And his forthcoming, Transcendentalism and the Cultivation of the Soul, which should be out next month, offers a scholarly assessment of transcendentalist spirituality. Barry is the Minister Emeritus of the Unitarian Universalist Congregation of Shelter Rock, New York, a former Merrill Fellow here at HDS, and the 2111 recipient of the Angus McLean Award for Religious Education. Finally, it gives me great pleasure to introduce one of the newest members of the Divinity School community, Terry Tempest Williams. Terry's books, From Refuge and Unnatural History of Family and Place, to The Hour of Land, a personal topography of America's national parks, have established her identity as a modern-day Thoreau. As fully formed by Utah as Thoreau was by Concord, she's taken that devotion into the public sphere as a fierce defender of natural spaces 
and of the human beings whose lives are compromised when their homeland is dishonored. After many years on the faculty of the University of Utah, Terry has joined HDS as writer-in-residence for the 2017-2018 academic year. To give you a sense of just how integral she has already become to our community, I can tell you this is the third day in a row when she's given a public talk of some sort uh, here on our campus, so take it easy on her tonight. Uh, each, um, each speaker will speak in turn and then we'll have time for questions and answers, uh, followed by a reception over in the Brown Room. Please join me in extending a warm welcome to our panel. Wonderful to see you all here uh, this evening, and I want to thank Dan, of course, for bringing us uh, together um, on this occasion. It's really special for me uh, to be at the Harvard Divinity School. I'm like, which room was the room that Emerson gave the Divinity School address in? You know, I want to go and just sort of inhale. <laughs> um, and thanks also to Andrea uh, for pulling all of us together in a material sense and making sure we were housed and fed and all those important things, too. Um, so I want to start um, uh, uh, with a sort of preface. Um, in our discussions ahead of time, the phrase spiritual but not religious came up, and I know that Rich is going to speak um, a little about this too. And it got me thinking about that, and so I turned to somebody who's not here, Alan Hodder, who's written so much about thorough and religion, um, who takes up this phrase in his essay in the uh, very recently published collection of essays, Thoreau at 200, and um, decides that uh, there are some qualities uh, that characterize the person who would say, I am spiritual but not religious. And obviously, I'm unchurched. I'm in that group of people who've used that phrase uh, when you don't know what else to say. So here is what um, Alan Hodder, um, who is, sees Thoreau as the person who um, sort of the direct um, ancestor of this um, way of thinking. Um, what are the attributes? This, the, uh, first of all, this person would reject, um, reject organized religion in favor of a individualistic belief would reject dogma and formal theology for an experiential belief system, would reject exclusivity for a more pluralistic acceptance, um, would gravitate toward the natural world as a kind of uh, spiritual source, um, and of course refuse pat answers, and he also notes a fascination of typical fascination for Native American and Asian religious traditions, all of these coming from Thoreau. So uh, part of, I think, a, a theme that we'll have is uh, our discontent with the, f with the phrase, and it'll be interesting to see how we converge uh, and diverge and, and sort of what comes of this discussion. But my own sense of uh, dissatisfaction, you'll hear we talk about it in terms of Thoreau's own work um, in a moment. But behind that and sort of out in front of it uh, is I think this, this turn towards the gravitating towards the natural world, which has characterized my life all my life. And it's different now. Um, you probably know that there's a tremendous discussion happening around the phrase, the, the word nature and the natural world. 
what is nature anymore? I mean, it's not that it's ever been an easy term uh, to wrestle with, um, but we're now, according to some people, in a post-natural time. Um, or maybe uh, we're in an ecological time and we don't want to uh, deal with nature anymore as a past term. But the, my forthcoming, the, the project I'm engaged with now, it's a long ways from even being forthcoming, but Earthrise is a way of tagging um, what I've been thinking about in terms of the Anthropocene. And I was telling, um, over dinner, Terry Tempest Williams and I were, were talking, and I said, it was about 10 years, well, it's 2007 when the Arctic ice did this tremendous retreat, about 50% um, in one summer, that I, looking at the scientific reports and the imagery coming out of the Arctic, um, said to myself, and then turned right around and said to my students, but this changes everything. And I, they looked at me and I, I said, no, I, I don't mean like this class or literary studies or like modernity or, I said, this changes everything. And that sense of a rupture, a deep rupture, um, I spent the airplane trip coming out here reading Clive Hamilton's Defiant Earth. Um, haven't gotten all the way through it, but um, he will speak of, um, he says, this is the kind of shift that typically takes two or three or four generations to sink in. Our best scientists tell us insistently that a calamity is unfolding, that the life support systems of the earth are being damaged in ways that threaten our survival. Yet in the face of these facts, we carry on as usual. What else can we do? Um, and uh, point, points to the fact of the rupture being uh, not some kind of local disturbance in our concept of nature or a kind of regional ecosystem disruption, but as he says, um, we, uh, humanity, in our actions have um, diverted the planet itself, Earth itself, onto a different trajectory. Um, one that, well, whatever happens on Earth, whatever happens to this planet, um, from this time forward, um, this planet will always be our descendant. So that means that gravitating toward nature no longer feels like a sufficient descriptor, um, and yet where does it leave us? So that's the future orientation, and I think the, the deep driver for me. Um, but of course the other is Thoreau himself in a, in a I think a moment that wasn't that dissimilar from ours, and my grappling with him in my book. So, my primary question tonight is, what does it mean to assert that Walden is primarily a religious text? Though I never say so in, many, in so many words, it's a central theme of my book, Henry David Thoreau, A Life. I teach at Notre Dame, as you heard, this has made me uh, comfortable in, assert, in asserting and exploring this proposition. But when I take it out into the secular world, um, so-called, I find that it occasions some surprise. It's Thoreau himself who led me to this point, most obviously in his journal, where in his earliest days living in his new house at Walden Pond, he advances the thought that a good house is a temple I've seen such made of white pine, seasoned and seasoning still to eternity where a goddess might trail her garment. 
He writes that eating might become a sacrament, a method of communion, an ecstatic exercise, a mingling of bloods, and sitting at the communion table of the world. And uh, that after time has sifted the literature of a people, there is left only their scripture, for that is writing par excellence. These examples may be multiplied many-fold. Soon it becomes clear that Thoreau's avowal of purpose is explicitly and profoundly sacred. Yet he cannot cast his purpose in Christian language, so in these early days at the pond, he speaks of the Greek gods and goddesses instead. Once the Bhagavad Gita becomes available, he speaks in its terms. And in a week, uh, the book he wrote while he was at the pond, uh, he'll go so far as to put up my Buddha against your Jesus in sublime ignorance of the firestorm such pluralistic religious language would bring down upon his head. This raises the question of what religious means for Thoreau and why we might want to apply that word or resist applying it to him. For while to some of us religion opens and deepens our understanding of his purpose both at and beyond Walden Pond as well as in Walden the book, for others of us, that is, those of us embedded in modern secularity, it seems to have the opposite effect, narrowing and limiting Thoreau's literary voice to something much smaller, sectarian, and even a little backwards. This problem is related to Dan Malachuk's work to re-transcendentalize transcendentalism, that is, uh, Dan is arguing that we've gone too far in insisting that transcendentalism is post-Christian. We need to approach the worldview of the transcendentalists themselves, which was far closer to Christian commitments than to the secularism of today's academic mainstream. So this is his larger project. Or in other words, to approach Thoreau, we need to move ourselves imaginatively out of modernity's treatment of religion as a separate category, an abstract realm, and here I'm uh, quoting, um, let me make sure I get his name right, um, Greg Anderson's recent uh, work on plural ontologies, a sacred space or sphere that is rationally disaggregated from the rest of social life, so that sphere apart. So we need to move out of that treatment of religion as a separate category and into Thoreau's life world, into his own ontological commitments. This is in one sense merely the work of any good historicist analysis. But is it anything more or deeper? I feel that it is, for I feel that having made this imaginative commitment myself as a biographer, I come back to modernity, my own time, with a sense of deep impoverishment and an inability to speak to my contemporaries in a way that I, or Thoreau, may be heard. I lack a language. But obviously, so did Thoreau, hence his alternative forms of address, his gods and goddesses, carried over with more seriousness than, more seriousness than we might expect from his years of classical studies here at Harvard. Thoreau, too, to borrow a phrase from Bruno Latour's recent book, Facing Gaia, no longer feels convoked by the Christian God, but he does feel convoked by something, 
for which he is seeking a new language, a new scripture, or as I put it in the book, a gospel for the modern world. But that still leaves unanswered the question of what religion means to Thoreau. I just slipped into the present tense. I'm talking, he's very much alive to me. I would submit the problem as a category error of our own design. Thoreau did not think of religion as a detached and abstract realm that one could take or leave at will, so he doesn't imagine himself taking up religion now and again and then putting it by to take up something else, say science or poetry. In a week on the Concord Merrimack River, uh, the book Thoreau went to Walden to write, he ventured that religion is the ligature same etymological root, at least according to some, um, the ligature that connects humans with divinity, which in most people is stretched to a thread, a thread which for some people has broken. In effect, Thoreau is insisting that religion is the integrative principle, religare, the bands or ligatures that attach us to each other, to the earth in its fullness to the heavens and the gods. When Thoreau expresses this most fully, he converges most closely with Pope Francis's integral ecology in Laudato Si, his encyclical on climate change and inequality. This surprising convergence of ethics, religion, science, and poetry, and indeed, what does it leave out? It's at Walden that Thoreau strategizes his arrest for non-payment of taxes putting resistance to civil government into play in the so-called political sphere, which is, again, for Thoreau, not abstract and detached, but also part of an ongoing praxis, as he'll make clear in his address to his town people, his polis. The surprising convergence, then and now, non-modern and modern, Protestant and Catholic, needs further exploration. Walden is Thoreau's articulation of that integrative principle, the precondition for his own integral ecology. The structure of Walden follows the three-part structure Thoreau maintains in his very early essay, um, Aulus Persius Flaccus, is the necessary order in the development of genius. First, complaint. Second, plaint. Third, love. This parallels the three steps of Christian ascetics, and didn't we always know Thoreau was an ascetic? From praxis, to contemplation of the world, to personal union with the divine. A pretty workable outline for Walden. From economy, the complaint, uh, and the early chapters, to the pawns and the middle section, uh, to the turning at the end of higher laws when the voice of the flute calls him to a different sphere. By the book's conclusion, we find ourselves inhabiting that different sphere, stepping to the measure of Thoreau's flute as we ramble to higher and higher grass. In that sense, then, Walden narrates the progress of genius, which is, of course, shared by all human beings, for, of course, the narrator of Walden, who at the end of Higher Laws names himself John Farmer, is an everyman figure. That this progression is, in Thoreau's terms, a self-conscious path of devotion toward realizing imminence in the earthly world will be a constant, explicit theme in his early journals. In the years after the publication of Walden, 
This path of devotion will be played out, literally, in his communal home on Main Street in Concord, where he articulates communal forms of praxis in the company and um, with the assistance of his neighbors. The urgency behind Thoreau's need to live and articulate this developmental integration of the cosmos to in effect create a new cosmogram responds, as he well knew, to the same cultural crisis that prompted Emerson's Divinity School address. Here's Emerson speaking. Then all things go to decay. Genius leaves the temple to haunt the senate or the market. Literature becomes frivolous. Science is cold. Society lives to trifles. And when men die, we do not mention them. Thoreau also knew uh, Theodore Parker, and he knew Parker's own great address, transient and permanent, well enough to pun on it in correspondence with Emerson, but more. As Bob Gross has shown, or is showing, his book isn't quite out yet, um, Thoreau knew this in his own family. As a boy of 10, he was faced with the spectacle of religious schism in his own Orthodox household when Concord's Unitarian Church split. A third of the dissenters were Thoreau's. Henry's mother, Cynthia, who at first went, went along with the dissenters to the new and more conservative Trinitarian Church, soon changed her mind and returned to Ezra Ripley's more liberal congregation. Bob Gross speculates that witnessing this pluralization of the Christian church right there in his own household pushed young Thoreau to question doctrinal belief altogether. This sounds right to me. In a week, Thoreau will mount his own pulpit, thundering to New England's lost souls that the sentences of the New Testament, quote, never were read. They never were heard. Let but one of these sentences be rightly read from any pulpit in the land, and there would not be left one stone of that meeting house upon another. In that spirit of questioning, while in Emerson's home with access to Emerson's library, Thoreau takes up Hindu and Buddhist scriptures and finds in them his solution. As he inserted into the pages of the dial from the laws of Menu, all the bliss of deities and of men is declared by sages who discern the sense of the Veda to have in devotion its cause, in devotion its continuance, in devotion its fullness. All the scriptures of the nations, Thoreau suggested in a week, should be collected, the Chinese, the Hindus, the Persians, the Hebrews, and others, as the scripture of mankind, which might finally liberalize the faith of men, or, as the bumper sticker has it, God is too big for any one religion. But that still leaves, pro uh, leaves Thoreau with the problem of the church. Where is the house of this greater God? Where is the congregation that gathers and worships him, her, it? What are the principles that gather them together in this modern world of cross pressures and pluralization of industrial capitalism and slavery and mass immigration of urban intensification and rural depopulation of environmental destruction? A week argues all this out catastrophically. Thoreau found himself cried down as a heretic and an atheist. This firestorm made it impossible to publish Walden, at least right away. But by the time Thoreau returned to the half-finished manuscript in 1852, 
he has renewed his sense of purpose and found a way to cast it in poetic, mythical language that will not trigger the censors. The, the loon who calls to the god of loons for aid, which when it comes drives Thoreau off the water. The Bhagavad Gita, which teaches Thoreau that the pure Walden water is mingled with the sacred water of the Ganges. The artist of Kuru, who pursues his craft with such devotion that time halts its course until when the finishing stroke was put to his work, it suddenly expanded before the eyes of the astonished artist of the fairest of all the creations of Brahma. He had made a new system in making a staff, a world with full and fair proportions. Who can doubt that in reading this, we hear Thoreau utterly astonished to behold the world Walden had created. I conclude with some speculations. First, one can see in Walden as Thoreau's, or first, can one see Walden as Thoreau's offering to the gods? I offer as evidence the couplet that ends his poem, Smoke, which is engraved appropriately enough on the stone at the Walden house site that marks his fireplace. Go thou, my incense, upward from this hearth and ask the gods to pardon this clear flame. From whence this image of Greek gods, of a Greek world where the business of life is transforming Hosea into Hyra, household gods, household goods rather, into gifts consecrated to the gods that they might secure and perpetuate the vitality of the polis as a whole. The strangeness of this language makes Thoreau seem foreign and even antiquated, but I think he's drawing on an ancient language because he knows only words from deep time have momentum enough to reach our ears today. This couplet is a little time capsule. His, his little poem, this is his Voyager probe launched into the future and coded with what he hopes will be a recognizable language to us, something we can translate, we who are barely visible on the temporal horizon of Thoreau's time. But he does look ahead to us. As we look back to him, can we distinguish his life world from our own? Thoreau's ontological commitments from our own and yet nevertheless see in him this descendant of pre-modern English villagers and Scottish Calvinist dissenters, of American Quakers, of Huguenot refugees, elements of our own non-modernity, slumbering perhaps, but part of our historical inheritance, and hence quicken our own latent imagination of alternate futures, futures that might resist the impending collapse of the same modern life world that Thoreau tried to resist and redefine. The old joke in Concord is that visitors who inquire the way to the church are asked, well, which one? The Unitarian, the Trinitarian, or the Church of Walden Pond? It's worth a chuckle, but after learning my way around Thoreau's hometown, I, refer I return to my own land, wishing I had something better than a joke to offer our own posterity. Thanks. <laughs> Well, thank you. It's a delight to be here and to see that Thoreau is uh, 
more alive today than when they put them in the ground uh, in 1862. And Laura, I'd be very happy to take you to the chapel where Emerson spoke. Oh, but great. as a good Emersonian, you should know there's nothing there. Okay. You're here. Um, <clears throat> Thorough and God. To many, that is an oxymoron. A view not without some justification. But I think it is better understood as a riddle. Given the head-scratching things that Thoreau wrote about religion, as well as the contradictions between what he said, whatever that was, and what he did, I think a riddle is what he intended it to be. The standard view is that Thoreau was spiritual but not religious. I don't fully dispute that viewpoint, but I do wonder if it isn't a projection of the predominant secularism of our society, and in particular, the academic world and thorough studies. I ask because it omits the palpable, undeniable presence of a loving, benign, imminent God in his writing. Now, I'm not talking about the few overt theological statements about the nature of divinity or the errors of organized religion. No, I mean his occasional, but not infrequent, affectionate, emotion-laden comments in his journal or in his letters about God and at times to God in the second-person voice of the Psalms. These are moments when, despite the poison darts he threw at churches, clerics, and creeds, Thoreau reveals his deep religious instinct. Emerson said that despite Thoreau's petulance toward churches, he was a person of rare, tender, and absolute religion. I think that's true, and today I'd like to consider how Thoreau's response to trees bears that out. Thoreau wrote about trees for a quarter century. He observed them closely, knew them well, described them in detail, but he did not presume to fully explain them. He respected a mysterious quality about trees, a way in which they point beyond themselves. For Thoreau, tree, trees bore witness to the holy and emerged in his writings as special emblems and images of the divine. They were spires, he said, that lifted his vision to heaven. Now, just what that word meant to him is unclear, but he used the word heaven in all of its forms, heavenly heavens, etc., 48 times in Walden. He continually linked heaven and trees. By fall, an industrious red maple has grown nearer heaven than it was in the spring. Elms take a firmer hold on earth that they may rise higher into the heavens. Loggers felled a majestic pine that for Two centuries have been rising by slow stages into the heavens. He writes a prayer on a leaf, and the bough springs up the scrawl to heaven. An oak sapling is driven back to the earth again 20 times, as often as it aspires to the heavens. When he used that in similar metaphors, Thoreau revealed a part of him that is easily misunderstood. It's true. He railed at the bigotry and ignorance of organized religion. He found its doctrines despairing, its clergy torpid, and its rituals as superstitious as those of the Roman peasantry. Men run after the husk of Christianity and forget about the seed, he said. The god of the meeting house has, quote, perhaps too many of the attributes of a Scandinavian deity, and, and he could be not only cutting, but wickedly funny about it, 
referring to the doctors of divinity. He said that he would rather listen to the chickadee-dees than the dee-dees. <laughs> but um, despite these views, Thoreau was, in fact, religious to the bone. He had a deeply religious cast of mind and a profound sense of the holy. He rejected the meeting house not because it represented religion, but because it profaned it. It killed a true religious impulse. Quote, we check and repress the divinity that stirs within us to fall down and worship the, the divinity that is dead without us. After writing that men seek but the husk of Christianity, he goes on. He says, the kernel is still the very least and rarest of all things. There is not a single church founded on it. Formal religion with its doctrines, exclusivist claims, and sectarian squabbling was peripheral to the religion he sought in nature, a religion by revelation, as Emerson indeed called it in a Divinity School address, a newer testament, as Thoreau called it, the gospel according to this moment. He was not interested in defining it. Experiencing it was all he cared about, and trees often led him to it. They were his shrines and burning bushes, the forest his cathedral. Its spires inspired him more than the whitewashed village steeple. Alone in a distant wood, even on a dismal day, he said that he got what, quote, what others get from church going. Quote, a forest in all mythologies is a sacred place, Thoreau wrote, and that would include his own. Now, before looking at um, Thoreau's direct religious experience in the woods, I want to briefly mention two other ways that Trees drew out his deep religiosity. One is that as a writer, he conveyed the sanctity of Trees in emphatically religious terms. He said it was senseless, for example, that Puritan meeting houses had caused the desecration of, quote, far grander temples not made with hands. In fall, Thoreau collected stumps logs and driftwood on the river for his winter fuel. And he saw his act of splitting and burning these as a religious exercise. Quote, these old stumps stand like anchorites and yogis, he wrote, putting off their earthly garments, more and more sublimed from year to year, ready to be translated, and then they are ripe for my fire. I administer the last sacrament and purification. In autumnal tints, the autumn leaves contentedly, quote, return to dust again and are laid low, resigned to lie and decay at the foot of the tree, echoing both Genesis 3.19, for dust thou art, and unto dust thou shalt thou return, and the tree, a traditional Christian cipher for the cross. In Christian typology, the fall stands for man's enslavement to sin and to death. In autumnal tints, it heralds rebirth, just as spring did in Walden. One metaphor Thoreau used for trees over and over was spire, a majestic tree that rose like a column and brushed the sky moved him deeply. Unlike a church steeple, which just sat on a building, uh, the roots of a tall tree reached down into the earth while its crown pierced the emprium, the highest heaven, on the other side, connecting them. 
spiring upward was deeply meaningful to Thoreau. Aspiration to a higher life was at the core, was at the core of his being. A man who doesn't believe that, quote, each day contains an earlier, more sacred, and a rural hour has the spirit of life, he wrote in Walden. Quote, my desire to bathe my head in atmospheres unknown to my feet is perennial and constant, he wrote H.G.O. Blake. And if a man constantly aspires, is he not elevated? Trees represented this power to elevate himself above the common level of life, as he put it. Quote, the, the pines spire without end, higher and higher, he writes, in a week on the Concord and Merrimack rivers. Majestic firs, spruce and pine, steepled the main woods. Quote, I was struck by this universal, universal spiring upward of the forest evergreens. All spire upwards, lifting a dense spearhead of cones to the light and air. The other um, point I wanted to mention was that trees symbolized the religious idea of resurrection to Thoreau. His masterpiece, initially titled Walden, or, a life, or Life in the Woods, ends with the parable of life in the wood. The bug entombed in the dry leaf of a kitchen table made from the wood of an apple tree. Dormant for 60 years, it was hatched by the heat of an urn, gnawed it and gnawed its way out to enjoy its perfect perfect summer life at last. Quote, whose faith in a resurrection and immortality, Thoreau asked, is not strengthened by hearing this story, which actually was not altogether uh, a, a fiction. There was a, a, a tale of three bugs emerging from a, uh, a table in Pittsfield, Massachusetts, uh, very similar to this. That, and, uh, Thoreau's immersion as a naturalist in the dynamics of the forest deepened his association of trees and rebirth. In November 1860, he saw young white pines and birches filling an abandoned pasture that he knew from his own experience had lacked a single tree 15 years earlier. Quote, I confess I love to be convinced of this inexhaustible vitality in nature. I would rather that my body be buried in a soil thus wide awake than in a mere inert and dead earth. The autumn leaves fall, he wrote, only to rise again. They still live in the soil, whose fertility and bulk they increase. They stoop to rise, I love that, they stoop to rise, to mount higher in coming years by subtle chemistry in new trees. And of course, he famously declares in the main woods that the white pine, the white pine to be immortal. It is the living spirit of the tree, not its spirit of turpentine, with which I sympathize and which heals my cuts. It is as immortal as I am, and perchance will go to as high a heaven, there to tower above me still. And in my book, I have a picture um, of the white pines towering over Thoreau's grave at Sleepy Hollow. Mm. It's really quite extraordinary. Um, but the most important way that trees touched Thoreau's religiosity was that they renewed his spirit. When I would recreate myself, he wrote in walking, I seek the darkest wood, the thickest and most interminable swamp, and enter it as a sacred place, a sanctum sanctorum. The forest was a spiritual elixir to him. The penetrating aromatic smell of the pine restored him. 
At the sound of the wind in the woods, quote, my heart leaps into my mouth, he wrote in August 1851, quote, I suddenly recover my spirits, my spirituality, through my hearing. The sight of the pines below Fairhaven Cliffs, shining in a clear ethereal light, awakened him inwardly. Seeing this, he wrote, my spirit is like a lit tree. The winter woods especially held mysteries for Thoreau, and he walked in them more as supplicant than naturalist, alert to the mystical. Is there no trace of intelligence there, he asked, whether in the snow or the earth or in ourselves? No other trail but such as a dog can smell? Is there none which an angel can detect and follow? None to guide a man on his pilgrimage? Thoreau thought that institutional Christianity fostered resignation and despair. It had dreamed a sad dream, he said. Trees conveyed the opposite to him. They expressed a naked confidence, that's a quote, and stirred a joy and gratitude that was at the heart of Thoreau's spirituality. The spruce, the hemlock, the pine will not countenance despair. The winter of their discontent never comes. The riotous autumn colors of the trees suggested to him that life's daily routine should be interrupted by, quote, an analogous expression of joy and hilarity, and that our spirits should rise as high as nature's. Loggers and lawyers with their, quote, saws and laws, he said, do not know how glad a man can be in the woods. Glad, he added, with an entire gladness. Nature, Thoreau said, is full of genius, full of the divinity. And how he spoke of that divinity changed with his rhetorical purpose or mood to some extent. In his more formal philosophical view, it was generally an impersonal, ineffable, divine principle. And the more polemical he was, the more it sounds like pantheism. Yet in his private speech, when writing in letters or in his journal, about his experience of the sacred in nature, it is surprising how often he turns to more conventional religious terms and speaks more tenderly, vulnerably, and reverentially. All the motions of nature, the running stream, the waving tree, the roving wind, must be, quote, circulations of God, he wrote. Exhilarated by a sail, he felt, quote, blown on by God's breath, like his very body was fluttering and filling out gently with the breeze. On September 7, 1851, a day in which some scholars believe he crystallized his life's mission to observe and record nature every day in his journal, Thoreau pledged to find God in nature. If by watching all day and all night, I may detect some trace of the ineffable, then will it not be worth the while to watch, he wrote, alluding to the motif in the Psalms of the watchman who calls out the morning light. To watch for, describe all the divine features which I detect in nature, my profession is to be always on the alert to find God in nature. Out in the woods after a snowstorm, Thoreau hears the bells of First Parish in Concord. Men obey their call and go to the stove-warmed church Though God exhibits himself to the walker in a frosted bush today as much as in a burning one 
to Moses of old. Now the God that Thoreau described was not that of the Bible or of his Bible, swooping down from on high, but a God woven into every twig, trunk, and blade. It was a benign, loving, and above all, familiar presence to Thoreau, a presence like the one that dispelled a moment of loneliness a few weeks after he moved to Walden Pond in July of 1845. He suddenly became aware, he said, of the presence of something kindred to me, an infinite and unaccountable friendliness all around him. Every little pine needle expanded and swelled with sympathy and befriended me. Now, I don't know if that meets your definition of a spiritual encounter, but it was good enough for William James to cite in the varieties of, of religious experience. Thoreau also spoke of occasional visits at Walden uh, in the Solitude chapter, visits on long winter evenings from a, quote, an old settler and original proprietor who was reported to have dug Walden Pond and stoned it and fringed it with pine woods, who tells me stories of old time and of new eternity. And between us, we managed to pass a cheerful evening with social mirth and pleasant views of things. A most wise and humorous friend whom I love much. And at times, Thoreau spoke affectionately to God, as he did in that passage I cited earlier about being stirred by the sound of the wind in the trees. That goes on, and I'm going to just abbreviate it. Uh, ah, if I, could, if I could so live that there would be, should be no desultory moment in all my life, I would walk, I would sit and sleep with natural piety. I thank you, God. I do not deserve anything. I am unworthy of the least regard, and yet I am made to rejoice. I am impure and worthless, and yet the world is gilded for my delight. Now, at the same time, Thoreau did not claim to know the exact nature or, or source of these divine stirrings he experienced in nature. They were unfathomable. The trees knew things that he did not and would never know, he wrote. Quote, you are never so far in them as they are far before you. Their secret is where you are not and where your feet will never carry you. Well, how to piece together the puzzle of Thoreau's religion? We can look historically and see a number of influences, including the Huguenots that Laura mentioned, the uh, French Protestants who, from whom Thoreau was proudly descended, and who, by the way, worshiped in the woods to avoid persecution. They had a movable chair that they would, mm -hmm. like the Ark of the Covenant. Uh, also, the Quaker George Fox and the antinomian Puritans like Anne Hutchinson, who believed, who placed personal revelation at the heart of religion. Of course, Jonathan Edwards, who knew a divine rapture in nature no less than thorough, and of course, Emerson, especially in nature and a divinity school address. But I think we, we can just say that Thoreau was deeply Protestant, a Protestant in the extreme, Emerson called him in his eulogy, and deeply reformist, so reformist that he can sometimes makes the radical reformation look like a tent revival. <laughs> the, the divine principle, Thoreau believed, was ever new, never finished, always taking new forms, making, quote, a new impression every instant. 
and thus could not be reduced to one formulation or contained in one religion. The perfect God, so not the God that's the projections of other men, the perfect God has never got to the length of one creedal proposition of the church. For every book, Thoreau said, no matter how recently printed, there is always a later, newer edition. Thoreau asks in a week, may we not see God? And this is often taken as a rejection of Emersonian idealism. But I think over the course of the rest of Thoreau's life, he answered no. In 1854, he sees a beautiful cardinal and imagines that the deeper woods holds a redder, wilder, truer, more vibrant one. But after looking for some time, he concludes that the bird of his imagination cannot be matched, has no compere, he says, is never to be found. Quote, the red bird, which is the last of nature, is but the first of God. This, too, is a very Protestant notion, the idea that the human imagination and yearning for God, stirred by the Bible, exceeds whatever can be attained of God through material religion, through the quote-unquote real thing. Sola Scriptura, by scripture alone are we saved. Thoreau thought along the same lines, but did Calvin one better, omitting not only the priest, but also Christ and the Bible. One could, one could know God, he believed, sola nature, by nature alone. Now, it also must be said, and with genuine humility, that perhaps no religious frame that any of us could offer would do justice to Thoreau's search for a, a truth beyond all religions. And Thoreau himself does not help. What is, re <clears throat> what is religion, he asked? That which is never spoken. Thank you, Henry. To do so would be, he said, to do so would be to presume to fable the NF fable. So he wouldn't do that, right? And when he did speak, he would not toe the line. As Laura quoted earlier, he said in a week, I know that some will have hard thoughts of me when they hear their Christ named beside my Buddha. He wrote in a week, yet I am sure, I am willing that they should love their Christ more than my Buddha. <laughs> For the love is the main thing, and I like him too. <laughs> love was indeed the main thing for Thoreau, and he made that clear in the one time that I can find that he did offer a definition of religion in a letter on September 8, 1841, to Isaiah Williams, a young friend of Emerson's who was interested in transcendentalism. Religion, Thoreau wrote, is where your love is. Thank you. Good evening. It's a pleasure for me to be here, to be invited to be a part of uh, this program this evening and to uh, be sharing uh, the program with uh, writers whom I cherish as friends as well as colleagues. And I'm really at a loss for words as to how I could uh, add to what uh, Laura and Rich have already said. Um, so uh, please forgive me if, uh, if I'm uh, repeating 
uh, some of that in the course of my own remarks here this evening. But I'd like to, to begin by noting that during this bicentennial year, at least a dozen books have been published about Henry Thoreau, not the least uh, of those uh, by uh, Laura Dassa Walls and, and Richard Higgins. As I was reading my way through this pile of books, I thought of a story uh, by Thomas Wolfe that first appeared in the New Yorker magazine in 1935, Only the Dead Know Brooklyn. In this story, uh, the narrator, a lifelong resident of Brooklyn, encounters a newer resident of the borough, exploring the various neighborhoods map in hand. How long, he says, would it take a guy with a good map to know all there was to know about Brooklyn? <laughs> and then he concludes, it'd take a guy a lifetime to know Brooklyn true and true, and even then you wouldn't know it all. <laughs> well, all of these books offer us maps of Thoreau's life and mind, including the most detailed map we have thus far, Laura Wall's marvelous biography. There's no other American author I'm aware of about whom there is so much to know. This past year, books have been written on Thoreau's studies of trees, flowers, and animals, his fascination with spirits and fairies, his river explorations, his role in the anti-slavery movement, his reading and embrace of Darwin's origin of the species, and the grace with which he faced his own tragic and untimely death. Yet I think Professor Walls would agree that there is even more yet to learn about this multifaceted writer. And I would venture to add, even then you wouldn't know it all. <laughs> this scholarship is a boon to those of us who feel that Thoreau is worth the effort to understand him better and discover more about his interests and subsequent influence on American life and culture. I can't say enough about Laura's biography of Thoreau or Rich's exquisite meditation on Thoreau's love affair with trees. The danger we encounter in the midst of the welter of information produced in the wake of recent scholarship, as Rebecca Solnit points out in her mm -hmm. essay on the Thoreau problem, mm -hmm. is that we will end up compartmentalizing him, as in Thoreau the surveyor, Thoreau the abolitionist, Thoreau the naturalist, and so on. Or worse yet, bifurcating his life between the recluse of Walden Pond on the one hand and the activist in the Concord jail on the other, or between the dreamy transcendentalist of his youth and the hard-headed scientist of his later years. Thus we fail to see how the myriad parts of his life are of a piece and hang together. I heartily agree with Laura's point that religion is the integrative principle that connects his, reference, his reverence for nature, his social activism, and his scientific interests. Much has been revealed of Thoreau's turn toward science in the last decade of his life, a topic Professor Walls has covered extensively in her new biography and in her previous writings. This is one valuable contribution among many that Laura has made to Thoreau's scholarship. And she's fond of quoting a line from Thoreau's essay in Natural History of Massachusetts, mm -hmm. 
Let us not underrate the value of a fact. It will one day flower in a truth. In his book, Thoreau in the Language of Trees, Rich Higgins shows us how Thoreau's observations of trees flowered into profound truths about life and death. As often as not, these truths are spiritual in nature. In one of his last essays, Autumnal Tints, for instance, Higgins notes, the maple trees are cheap preachers permanently settled whose century and a half sermons minister to generations. Finding sermons in trees is an example of what Carlyle called natural supernaturalism. That is, describing ecstasies in nature using traditional religious language. And Rich gives us many examples in his book and highlights it in his remarks this evening. Thoreau grasped truths about river hydrology, the succession of trees, and the dispersion of seeds, but he never ceased to be amazed at what he observed in the natural world and to express his sense of wonder in the language of myth and symbol. In this sense, there never was a dichotomy between his transcendentalism and his scientific observations. As he once said in turning down an invitation to join the Association for the Advancement of Science, the fact is, I am a mystic, a transcendentalist, and a natural philosopher to boot. Now, from my perspective as a minister and a student of transcendentalism, the thread on which all the beads of Thoreau's many-faceted life are strung is his idiosyncratic and unconventional faith, a dimension largely unexplored in Thoreau's scholarship. Rich is one of the few to venture into this territory, and it is a major thread in Laura's biography as well. Thoreau's earliest uh, religious views were informed by his Unitarian upbringing. He was baptized and catechized in Concord's First Parish Church. His mother and father were members there. But he signed off from the church when he was a young man. By the time he entered college in 1833, he was perhaps not a devout Unitarian, but his Harvard education was nevertheless steeped in Unitarian tradition, the school having been a training ground for over a generation of Unitarian ministers. Many of his professors were noted Unitarians. His textbooks expounded the virtues of Unitarian moral philosophy. However, as a student, he was drawn to countercultural ideas then in vogue, the so-called new views of religion, self, and society that were being entertained by a younger generation of Unitarian intellectuals and divines. He was tutored by proponents of these views, first by Orestes Brownson during a three-month hiatus during his junior year, and later by Ralph Waldo Emerson, whose Transcendentalist Manifesto, Nature, Thoreau devoured in his senior year at Harvard. Emerson continued to be a mentor in the years following his graduation. It was Emerson who encouraged him to begin a journal, the best record we have of his spiritual life. Emerson also introduced him to the scriptures of India and other cultures, which were extremely influential in his religious development. The transcendentalists with whom he identified 
were generally of the opinion that the religious sentiment is natural and universal in human experience, whereas religious institutions are but parochial and limited forms which this sentiment takes. They also believed that religious truth is known by experience intuitively and thus does not depend on religious scriptures or church teachings. They conceived of a natural or absolute religion shorn of sectarian elements. Professor Walls has suggested that Thoreau's purpose in going to live at Walden Pond was profoundly religious and that in writing of his experience he was intending to produce a scripture for the modern world. To this I would add that Walden is not only a religious treatise, it is also a manual of spiritual practice. Self-culture played a central role in transcendentalist spirituality, sometimes termed the art of life, for, then, for them it meant the cultivation of the soul. The art of life, Thoreau wrote in his journal, was there anything memorable written on it? By what disciplines to secure the most life, with what care to watch our thoughts? The disciplines he practiced and described in Walden include leisure, self-reliance, reading, contemplation, solitude, conversation, sauntering in nature, simple living, and action from principle. By such practices, we may even today attempt to secure the most life. As for Thoreau's religion, we should perhaps heed his own admonition, which Rich reminded us of, what is religion, he queried in his journal, that which is never spoken. Part of the difficulty we have in describing Thoreau's religion is that the word religion was only then in the process, one accelerated by the transcendentalists themselves, of being thought of apart from its historical manifestations in the various faith traditions. What we can say, I believe, is that his religious views were experiential, nature-centered, and pluralistic. God, for him, was imminent rather than transcendent. He was, if anything, a nature mystic and a pantheist. He was familiar with the Bible since he read it in Greek at Harvard and frequently drew from biblical language and imagery in his own writings. But in my view, at least, while I would agree with Rich that he was a Protestant, <laughs> he was not Christian in any meaningful sense of the term. Lee Eric Schmidt argues in his book, Restless Souls, The Making of American Spirituality, that the transcendentalists were responsible for introducing the distinction between religion and spirituality, a prominent feature of religious life today. Thoreau eschewed uh, religious institutions, but he was a deeply spiritual person. And this is one of the reasons that many people today find him so appealing. He may have decri been de decried as a heretic and an atheist in his own time, but now he is viewed as the avatar of an alternative way of being religious in the world. This also accounts for his enduring, if somewhat paradoxical, population, popularity, uh, the, the enduring, if somewhat paradoxical, popularity of Thoreau and Emerson in Unitarian Universalist churches. 
as Ellen Hodder writes, within contemporary American faith communities, the Unitarians were among the first to identify Thoreau along with Emerson as one of the main originators of the openly pluralistic spirituality widely practiced within their present day congregations. It is paradoxical, first of all, in the sense that here you have a denomination that to some extent embraces the anti-institutionalism of Thoreau and the Transcendentalists. Perhaps this explains why the movement remains so small. Secondly, it is paradoxical in the sense that while Unitarian Universalist congregations gather and worship the God of the Transcendentalists and wrestle with issues of inequality, injustice, and climate change, Thoreau himself would not likely choose to be a member. It was once said, as Laura recounted, that there were three religious societies in Concord, the Unitarian, the Trinitarian, and the Walden Wood Society, and Thoreau was a member, of course, of the latter, and I believe would still be one today. His God was in the woods, and not in church, even one as progressive, as, sad to say, as the Unitarian Universalists. I've long viewed it as my own mission to see that he is with us in spirit, if not in person. <laughs> what a joy to share this evening with Laura Wells and Rich Higgins and be able to respond to the beauty of their work that illuminates our friend, Henry David Thoreau. I can tell you that the joy of my reading year has been found in these two books. And another joy is to see you again, Barry, and to be able to thank you publicly for your work on Margaret Fuller. Mm. Um, I'm honored to be able to stand by your sides. You are the true scholars. And thank you, Dan, for bringing us together tonight in the name of community from Concord to Cambridge as we honor the 200th anniversary of Thoreau. We're grateful that you've chosen to mark this moment at the Divinity School. I have to tell you that I'm mindful that on both um, celebrations of Thoreau's 200th year, there have been massive thunderstorms. <laughs> uh, we've been hearing this tonight. And um, Laura, right when you said, can we view Walden as an offering to the gods? Boom. <laughs> so I take that seriously. It was the biggest flash flood imaginable, remember, in Concord on that yeah, night that flooded the yeah. city. Oh, yeah. uh, so I think he is yes. here with us tonight. Yes. Janet Giazzo, I want to acknowledge you as our Dean of Faculty and Academic Affairs and how you remind us to see more deeply. And Charlie, Sting, um, thank you for being our spirited leader at the uh, Center for the Study of World Religions. The writer must speak the truth, this first, this second, this third, mm -hmm. Henry David Thoreau. I believe Laura Wells and Rich Higgins have done this in their exquisite books. One, a vibrant biography of Thoreau in place as a Concordian the other, a book that could be considered Thoreau's Prayer Book of Trees. What sews these two books together for me is their shared narrative of change 
and how one navigates through it. Laura Wells begins her book with the image of glaciers, melting glaciers. Quote, at its birth, Walden was not a pond at all, but a pile of dirt-covered ice, a genesis, perhaps, recorded in the oral memories of the first peoples to live here. For the oldest say, anciently the Indians were holding a powwow upon a hill here, which rose as high into the heavens as the pond now sinks deep into the earth, unquote. A brilliant, unlikely start to a biography of Thoreau. She goes on to say, quote, to imagine Walden then, go to the snout of a glacier today and look around. Until roughly 13,000 years ago, Concord was under a mile of ice that had been scouring the land for nearly 10,000 years before, melting slowly northward, ending the most recent of four cycles of glaciation and warming that shaped North America for 600,000 years, unquote. Wells creates a context for Henry far beyond Concord or Walden Pond that we now see as a glacial kettle. We, the readers, in 2017, complete the connection backwards and forward to this moment in time, in our own imaginations, <clears throat> where climate change is the defining issue on the epoch we now call the Anthropocene, where the press of humanity on the planet we call home registers as a geologic force. Change, quote, self-registering change. The Rose journals are filled with these kinds of notations. Wells writes of just one hike he took to Mount Monadnock. How do you pronounce it? Monadnock. I'm a Westerner. <laughs> a kind of alpine island in the sky. Thoreau's notes, quote, she writes, go on for more than 25 pages. Scores of plants, from trees to grasses to lichens, birds both visiting and resident, mammals, insects, and frogs. Thoreau mapped the summit, studied the bogs, and decided which rivers drained out of each. In short, Henry had a sustained phenological report of his home ground. And his journals are now just, not just valued for their literary and historical significance, but what moves me so much is that his keen eye and natural accounting over time tells us then and now the blooming cycles among plants, the hatching cycles in streams, and the arrival and departure of migrating birds. Thoreau's journals provide comparative natural histories in this era of global change, and they are being used not just by literary scholars, but scientists. Thoreau witnessed in his lifetime the deforestation of New England. He was aware of what had been lost before he even began to look what dwelled at Walden Pond. Bear, mountain lions, wolves, wolverines, and heathcocks, not to mention the fragmentation of native people from their whole communities, where a few Muscatoquid uh, lived in Concord, hidden at best, forgotten most commonly. The Indian world was in the midst of being shattered. Thoreau witnessed the final collapse of this ecological system, both human and wild. Quote, when he went to Walden Pond in 1845, Laura tells us, change was visible everywhere. By 1855, they were gone. This was the revelation for me in Laura's biography that Thoreau 
had to reckon with his own grief and melancholia for what he saw disappearing. It makes that bridge between our own grief and melancholia of what we're losing very, very real. He is present with us. I think he pondered throughout his work the question we are asking ourselves today. How do we find refuge in change? I think Richard Higgins' elegant book, Thoreau and the Language of Trees, provides us with both insight and answers. He worshiped trees. Black oak, sugar maple, birch, beech, elm, white pine, weeping willow, spires. The forests were his cathedrals. Autumn taught him about death and renewal. Succession was a cornerstone not only of his natural philosophy, but his spiritual belief. It was his pragmatic vision of what preceded us and what will follow us after we are gone. Quote, Thoreau, what a change there will be in a few years, this little forest of goldenrod giving place to a forest of pines. And, quote, when a dense pine wood is cut down oaks, when a dense pine wood is cut down, oaks may take its place. And you wonder how the acorns could have lain in the ground so long without decaying. Another, quote, every part of nature teaches that the passing away of one life is the making room for another. The oak dies down to the ground, leaving within its rind a rich virgin mold which will import a vigorous life to an infant forest. The pine leaves a sandy and sterile soil, the harder woods a strong and fruitful mold. So this constant abrasion and decay makes the soil of my future growth. As I live now, so shall I reap. If I grow pines and birches, my virgin mold will not sustain the oak. The pines and birches, or perchance, weeds and brambles, will constitute my second growth. <laughs> from his journal, October 24th, 1837. Second growth is a biological term in forestry. The trees that grow after the original forest has been cut. As always, Thoreau is both accurate and metaphorical, scientifically astute and metaphysically challenging. As Ezra Pound says, and Henry David Thoreau understood, the natural object is always the adequate symbol. Rich Higgins reminds us of this in his carefully curated selections of Thoreau's love affair with trees. How he recognized the elegant, elegant, elegant upward reach of elms, their branches akin, quote, to hurling bolts at heaven, or a distant white birch erect on a hill against the white misty sky looks, quote, with its fine twigs so distinct and black like a millipede crawling up to heaven, unquote. Thoreau found solace in beauty and peace in what was rooted, trees. There were no other, there were no, uh, there were, they were not other, they were gods with their own standing, not simply bored feet to be caught, cut and hauled away, quote, the pine is no more lumber than man is, Thoreau writes. Cutting down a pine tree for timber or turpentine is like killing people to make buttons and flagellates or flutes of their bones. It is the living spirit of the tree, not its spirit of turpentine, which, which I sympathize, he writes. 
It is as immortal as I am, and perchance will go to as high a heaven, there to tower above me still. Laura and Rich, because of your words and how you have shaped and crafted your ideas in making Henry not a caricature or an artifact of American romanticism, but we see a living, breathing warrior for justice, both human and wild, extremely relevant to this moment in time. You show us a writer of immense vision. You illustrate his capacity to see, and in your capacity to articulate his prescient point of view, we see not only Thoreau differently, but the truths of our own time. By showing us the changing landscape of the 1850s and 60s that takes us into the Civil War, you also show us a changing landscape of thought, as Gertrude Stein calls, the vitality of the struggle. Laura, you give us that wonderful scene where four radicals gather, Henry Thoreau, Bronson Alcott, Charles Loring Brace, how they arrive at Frederick Sanborn's home to discuss Darwin's origin of the species, and what it meant in your words, quote, to this gathering of abolitionists and John Brown supporters to learn not only that all animals re were related by common descent, but so were all human beings. Darwin knocked away the scientific foundation of racism. For if all human races were interrelated, then slavery was a moral abomination. Take care of your seeds, Thoreau writes. And in these two books, we locate the seeds where we find ourselves today, in another civil war of ideologies and racism, where once again we too are enmeshed in not only a democratic crisis, but an ecological one, as we contemplate our bundle of relations, to quote Emerson. The revelation of your work reminds us that in order to move forward as a species, it will not only require of us ecological literacy, as Thoreau had, and the political courage that he exercised through acts of civil disobedience and sustained resistance to injustices of his community but a spiritual rooting in beauty and a love that is wild. The black oaks towering over us in Harvard Yard can not only be seen, but recognized as the reach and roots of our humanity. Resurrection comes to mind. <laughs> Thank you, uh, all four of you, for the religious devotion that you've brought <laughs> to your relationship uh, with this man who has been a witness for you and through your work for all of us. We have about 20 minutes uh, for questions and answers, uh, and uh, we do have handheld mics uh, so that when you ask your question, everyone will be able to hear. So I will call on you, and then our two mic runners will make sure you have the technology you need. Who has a question for any of our speakers? Yeah, Charlie. Thank you. Thank you all so much. Um, I'm going to start with uh, a confession, which is there was a time in my life when I read Thoreau, uh, when, I went, when I read Walden every summer, and I now regret having let that practice go. 
Um, but I mention that not to um, signal that I'm deeply immersed in Thoreau, and, and you'll sense the ignorance at the root of this question, um, but instead to highlight the importance of reading in Thoreau's own um, vision. As, I, as you mentioned, it's one of the practices that he recommends in Walden. It has its own chapter. And I wonder whether that um, might lead us to inquire after a trace of Christianity in Thoreau. Um, simply put, is there any trace of a kind of logos theology in Thoreau, whereby all things were created through the word and apart from the word, nothing was created? And I ask that because in the, on the one hand, it would make sense of his esteem for the practice of reading, but also make sense of um, his experience of nature. I, I suppose I'm wondering whether he's not just walking and ambling and observing, but reading nature. So do you, all, any, any of you, see that Logos theology, however attenuated or masked, uh, pulsing through Thoreau? Yeah. Who's, who's the theologian? <laughs> Not me. Uh, Charlie was alluding to the opening of the Gospel of John, um, which speaks of the Logos, the Word, uh, as the divine uh, power in creation. And Orthodox Christians would identify that Logos with Jesus Christ. This is, oh, is this on? Yeah, okay. Um, so Thoreau didn't have the word ecology. Uh, his first chapter in Walden is um, the closest he could come, which is a cognate word, economy, which of course he's trying to, to stretch and deconstruct and you know, do all kinds of work with. Um, and of course what he ends up with after the, he's done with it is ecology, which as I say, the word is not um, invented during his lifetime. So the, this is a case where uh, the language uh, for it, the, the concept had to be created before um, it could be named. And so there's this wonderful sort of inchoate period when um, because there is no name, it's like open and yeasty and lots of people are doing lots of work uh, with concept. And then it kind of shuts down a little bit and the word gets much smaller um, in, in the latter part of the century. And so now, I mean, who knows what ecology means, but I'm pointing out to it because of um, the, the oiko part, the eco, of course, is household, um, but the nomia part is the law. Um, but Thor why do I say that Thoreau um, wants to undermine um, or deconstruct economy? Um, it's to move into where he wants to be, which is exactly logos in, I think, if I'm understanding you, because of course the, the ecology, the logi part is logos. And so um, it's not the study of the, the household of uh, the law or management of the household, but the voices in the household, um, what Emerson called the living, leaping logos. And Thoreau is um, listening to voices everywhere. It's one of the first things that he starts to inhabit is sounds. 
And so he speaks of um, the language that all things speak in the reading chapter, or sounds um, chapter. I don't know how much closer to Logos you can get than that. This one's on if you want. Okay, yeah. Well, I would, I would just add that in the uh, spring and um, conclusion mm -hmm. chapters of Walden, they are loaded with apocalyptic uh, references, the book of Revelations, uh, Genesis. I mean, it's all about the world being remade, uh, refashioned by this you know, divine power, and it's very explicitly, I mean, definitely refers to the, uh, uh, you know, the Acts of the Apostles and that. Uh, Thoreau's relationship with Christianity is a very vexed thing. Uh, he had grave problems with the historical Christ, but not with the, the fundamental Christian teachings, I guess I would say. I think he says something in uh, a week that when, uh, uh, maybe on the, when Jesus has preached the Sermon on the Mount, he says, you know, I, can, I incline close to him when I hear that, but um, he taught the world how to live but imperfectly. He was too focused on the next world, effectively, he says. He doesn't teach us how to live today. We still have to make a living in this world. So uh, his problem really was more with the focus on the person of Jesus. Um, and of course, Emerson said, the, the soul knows no persons. And I think that Thoreau uh, agreed with that. But not hostile to Christianity at all. Um, Maybe if I could add a word to that. Um, of course, uh, he, he was raised in a, in a religious household, Unitarian, uh, liberal Christian household. Um, but I think philosophically, he was much more uh, attuned uh, to the classical writers that he studied uh, seriously well, even even before college, but certainly during college, uh, and there's been a lot written about the kind of the um, the Neoplatonic views, especially of, of Emerson. I'm not sure the extent to which Thoreau uh, gets into that, but I, I would say that, uh, at least in, in my thinking, he he would probably agree with. Uh, with Emerson's uh, notion, which is a Neoplatonic one, uh, that the world as we know it is, is an emanation uh, of the divine rather than a creation uh, of, a, of, a, of a heavenly creator. Um, and that, that I think would square with what I see to be, well, his, his, his pantheism or panentheism. Barry, I think it was you mentioning that uh, to the extent that uh, Thoreau uh, would conceptualize about God, he was more imminent than transcendent, and yet we, we categorize him as a transcendentalist, and I know those words aren't necessarily mutually exclusive, or, and, then, and transcendent, transcendentalism may have a dip, different application um, than describing that difference between imminence and uh, uh, transcendence, but um, 
Do you think he was a transcendentalist? I mean, uh, maybe you could just explain or clarify uh, what they what the transcendentalists meant by transcendentalism, as opposed to well, uh, <laughs> imminence, uh, God being imminent. Because he had one left. Just when you said that, it struck me that that's kind of contradictory. Well, yeah, uh, I, I think there's been a lot of confusion about what, what the word transcendentalism means, and I, I don't think I can uh, uh, clear that up entirely uh, this evening, but, uh, you know, the, the, these new views that he was exposed to uh, were uh, more or less romantic views uh, from, uh, from Europe and, and, uh, and Britain uh, that uh, ran counter to the to the Lockean philosophy that uh, predominated uh, at Harvard College. Locke said that wh what we know comes to us by way of the senses. Now, uh, the transcendentalists uh, uh, drew on the, their understanding of Immanuel Kant, who uh, posited the, the notion of uh, transcendent uh, ideas uh, that are known uh, intuitively or experientially uh, in, in that sense. But, but uh, what which he confusingly called reason, which we don't uh, think well, of Well, yeah, I mean, that, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, to, to them, reason was intuition, yeah. mm -hmm. uh, as in contrasted with understanding, which is more uh, empirical ways of knowing. So they were transcendent in the, in the sense that uh, they believed that, uh, that these ideas transcended uh, the the em empirical uh, reality of the everyday world. Well, that's that's great. <laughs> I, it just saved me looking it up on Wikipedia because <laughs> <laughs> I just wanted to figure out. Yeah, I would just add to that that I think Thoreau was perhaps a little more willing than Emerson to at times think of God as uh, as beyond himself, uh, beyond nature. Certainly, at times he did. Yeah, I'd have to. Well, what's great about Thoreau, among other things, is that his implicit uh, anti-anthropocentrism. Uh, it seems to pervade his whole belief system and grow over time. Uh, so, if it's, he has, if he holds such a radical pantheism that trees can go to heaven then it opens up the way to dispense with uh, human beings altogether, doesn't it? I mean, he, know, he didn't have any children. You just, you just wonder whether if the spiritual vitality is in all living creatures, then no species is the center of the universe or, or is not uh, indispensable. So if he lived a full life, how do you think this uh, pantheist uh, radicalism would have unfolded over the next 25 or 30 years? Where was he going with it? Right here. Is this on? Okay. I'll say a little bit about that. I'm sure others have to. Um, so I mentioned in my remarks that, uh, so Thoreau, after Walden, moves back literally to Main Street, and he's in a communal household and working with uh, literally his community. And so um, this is where uh, Rich's work on, this, on seeds and regeneration becomes so important because he starts to work very hard on um, not only um, thinking through and writing about that um, in a philosophical and religious sense, but also very practically doing things like planting forests or replanting um, um, areas and uh, um, 
talking uh, and, and trying to understand what Darwin himself said was um, a great gap in our understanding, which is understanding distribution of species, which means Thoreau is looking at the seed itself, as was Darwin, but Thoreau is doing much harder work on um, understanding how the shape and form of each seed, each kinds of seed, moves out into the world differently. And of course, this idea becomes a kind of metaphor uh, um, for all his late work in wild fruits and in dispersion of seeds, uh, work that he um, leaves unfinished at his death. So if you extend forward from that, um, you, you get a kind of, uh, his phrase for it is the constant new creation. So the seed becomes this principle of uh, regeneration that becomes the responsibility of um, uh, each of us to what? We have to, well, yes, what's the line? Take care of your seeds. Um, uh, teaching, education, uh, writing, creative work in the world, um, but with young people. Um, and with the people around you, the farmers, and the landowners in Thoreau's case, um, educate them too. So he's doing this through um, lectures um, to his community and beyond, but he's about to get involved in the school system through Bronson Alcott, who is director of the, appointed the school superintendent. So I think what we lost um, was the Thoreau who was turning um, his attention literally to the earth and the soil and the seeds in that soil and uh, to, to the kind of aerial existence, seeds, uh, you know, how they move through the air, how, and thinking of them not just materially, the way the farmers would, but also um, in a larger sense, what are the seeds of ideas and how can we also take care of those seeds so we lost a lot of that, including the way that discussion of Darwin could have been inflected very differently had Thoreau made his, um, you know, lived long enough to get some of that into print during the big Darwin debates. Um, would, would have had, I think, a different flavor. So the community-based work um, would, would be one direction that I could take that question, but. Well, oh. I was just going to say, um, Laura, what you say reminds me of mm. this passage um, from Edward yeah. Emerson. Speaking of seeds. <laughs> yeah, uh, who was the, the son of, of Ralph Waldo. And he said, this is young Edward young. speaking. He stopped once on the street and made me hear clear but far above the red-eyed Vireo's note. And rarely coming that of his little white-eyed cousin I had not known. I venture to say few persons know that the little olive brown bird whom we associate with her delicate nest hanging between two twigs in the woods is one of the commonest singers on our main street in July. Many a boy and girl owed to him the opening of the gate of this almost fairy knowledge, and therefore after pleasant voices unknown of others spoke to him. Mm -hmm. So I think what you're saying yeah, about yeah. that notion of community restoration of, of forests and the restoration of these ideals in the next generation. Yeah, yeah that's exactly, that's what wild fruits is. Um, each, each fruit, each particular material um, um, object in the world in that sense um, starts to represent you know, an element in this whole uh, kind of uh, ecology of ideas and of lived traditions and um, the notion that traditions do not live unless they're 
reborn, regenerated in the present moment. So, you know, traditions that like uh, taking kids out to pick berries, um, which Thoreau did. So uh, taking individual children out to have a virio moment, or uh, Julian Hawthorne tells a story of Thoreau taking, uh, telling Julian about uh, the opening of the uh, uh, water lilies, and uh, Julian never forgot that, and always watched for the opening of the water lilies for the rest of his life. So, you know, one pretty, um, I wouldn't say that was a chance remark, but one what's probably a unremarkable moment to the adult is the moment that the child remembers and treasures for the rest of their life is that that moment that they were ready to hear it and you know again to take care of those moments. I'd like to just uh, add something to what uh, Laura was saying there. W one of the wonderful things about her biography of Thoreau uh, is that uh, she shows how much of a citizen of uh, of Concord he was. How, how uh, integral he was to the life of that community, how, uh, how he be befriended and, uh, and interacted with his, his neighbors mm -hmm. uh, there. Uh, so often we have this image of Thoreau as a, a reclusive uh, misanthrope mm -hmm. um, uh, or a hermit at uh, Walden Pond. Well, he, he was only there for a couple of years and even when he was there, he, uh, he came into town frequently, if not daily, uh, to to interact with uh, his his friends and neighbors. I don't know what course uh, his life would have taken if he'd uh, lived longer. Uh, certainly, he was uh, uh, avidly uh, ex exploring the the natural world around him. He was keeping uh, uh, notebooks on uh, on Native Americans. Uh, maybe that would have flowered into into some uh, form of of literature. But but. Uh, he was very much a, a, a person of his time and his, his community. Um, and I think sometimes we, we miss sight of that. Mm -hmm. I would just add, okay, well, go ahead. Right. Probably just one more, go ahead, yeah. Yeah. Um, outside oh. of, yeah, we can get to it. Oh. I can just, I think I'm not enough. Oh, there it comes. Okay, outside of academic circles, um, I wonder if you feel dispirited at all by um, Thoreau's, you know, the view of kind of popular culture, which, you know, do people even really think about him? And, and the Boston Globe, you know, just your happy birthday, Henry Thoreau, you gassy old crank. <laughs> and they call him a, a pyromaniac of food, a hypocrite, a layabout, a mooch, and a scold. Mm -hmm. Pretty nasty stuff. Um, Pond scum. Pond scum. Yeah, yeah so, New Yorker. I don't find that disturbing in the least. I mean, uh, for one thing, it's relatively familiar. Uh, it's also, I mean, I think you're referring to a column, column, column by Alex Beam, who is just, you know, spouting off, doesn't know what he's talking about. And <laughs> it, it's a, it was really a, a uh, you know, an outlier in, in the writing about Thoreau this, um, this year. I guess there was an, a column in the Financial Times that also characterized in that way, but um, no, it's interesting how the world has come around to uh, appreciate Henry, I think. I, I was just remembering that in uh, Emerson's eulogy, you know, he was very frank. Part of transcendentalism was to be candid with, you know, 
share your true feelings. And so he, he gave his negative side. And one was that, um, you know, Henry was, he, was, he, he aspired to be a, 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 an attorney to indigenous plants, which was a great <laughs> insult then. But think today of the, of the field of environmental law. Mm -hmm. I mean, mm -hmm. you know, it's huge. And uh, the gentleman back there asked, where would his vision be if, you know, if he had lived, you know? Um, it, think about the way that the American religious landscape today, so deinstitutionalized, so decentered. I mean, it's really, you know, very much the manifestation of, of where Thoreau was going. Um, mm. he, he, he practically anticipated global warming. I mean, he knew what trees, he said trees were, you know, essential for the salvation of the planet. He spoke about them uh, breathing and storing water and, you know, just their necessity. So um, I find them very relevant. And uh, yes, you get a few, uh, you know, gassy crank columnists now and again. But um, I, think, I think Henry will stand up just fine. I would agree that he will stand up just fine, but I will say it, it to me it is, I, I'm less sanguine than Richard is maybe. Um, <laughs> Uh, part of it is that I, um, in, in teaching my literature classes year in, year out, um, I'm so weary of having the students come in and there's one thing they know about Thoreau, and you know what that is, you've just said it. Um, and when I tell my colleagues that I work on this particular writer, there's one thing that they know and you just said it. And it... I think is not just the damage to uh, Thoreau, because I mean, one, one man, one writer, um, okay, so you deal with it uh, through, again, in my case, writing of uh, a biography and some other articles and so forth, but, and there was a side of him, you know, he had to, cre to arm himself in a certain way to, cr to um, create the time. So, as we heard, he did go to uh, town from Walden, pretty close to daily, if, if not literally every day. So how did he get time to do all that creative work? Um, because he would segment off part of every day that was absolutely, I was gonna say sacred, is that okay? Um, and and uh, Wobie tied the person who interrupted him when he was busy about being the writer and the seer and the thinker. Uh, so he would not be courteous to you. And those people, there was a few of them who would write narratives of, you know, Thoreau really dissed me today. Um, you know, what a jerk. And I'm sorry, any one of us who does really deep creative work um, and is pestered um, with somebody who, you know, okay, yeah, you let fly. Um, and so, all right, there's that biographical side. But here's the final point. Um, the damage that that does, not just to a writer, um, but to a set of ideas, and the way I um, put it years ago to myself was, um, if loving nature means hating humanity, then we're all in deep trouble. So the, the notion that somehow they're at war, that you can't do both in a, um, a kind of part of living a whole life in this world, um, then I, I do think that there is a deep distortion. It, 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 that kind of language appeals to a certain kind of thinking that I think is um, just deeply destructive and needs to be needs to be addressed um, just forcefully and repeatedly, um, not not through anger. 
it's just why give anger with anger? Uh, why why fight misanthropy with misanthropy? So just go back to what Thoreau says. He's not that person. We all know it. Um, so we find the person that he is and try to make that clear. Okay, I think at this point um, we um, would like Sorry. to invite all of you to a reception that will be in the Brown Room, yeah, which is as far as you can go that way. Mm -hmm. So first, let's thank all of our panelists. Oh, yeah.